Well, this is the fifth in the uh, ME 101 series. And, and today uh, we will look at the question that is on everyone's lips. I'm sure most of you have read about uh, the US cutting its troops in uh, Iraq by to 3,000 soon. And um, the question that everybody has is whether um, you know, the United States will remain uh, engaged in the Middle East. Uh, we have spoken last week about China, so today we turn to another one of the big players. Uh, the U.S. became a strategic player in the Middle East in the 50s uh, as its reliance on Persian Gulf oil uh, increased and it realized that it could no longer rely on Britain to protect its interests there. This pattern, a combination of interest and balance of power calculations, has uh, shaped its, its policies and the evolution of its policies in the region uh, ever since. You know? Uh, but while the U.S. Uh, won the Cold War in the Middle East in the early 70s, it paid heavily as a result of being bogged down in uh, strategic engagements, uh, one after the other. As a matter of fact, uh, the energy crisis in the early 70s, the Iran hostage crisis that began in, the, in 79, and so on. Uh, and then, of course, after 9-11, uh, the, the U.S. outlook in the region was again reshaped. Regional underdevelopment uh, became a threat to its national security and it sought to fix the Middle East. But the huge uh, toll that this took uh, and the poor track record uh, derailed its strategic uh, ambitions for the region. And again, it sought to uh, direct attention to Asia, that, that famous uh, Obama pivot to, to Asia to contend with China's rise. But now uh, the U.S. is no longer dependent on Middle Eastern oil and its grand ambitions of transforming the region have uh, fallen by the wayside or tucked away in, 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 a, in a drawer. And its strategic footprint uh, seems to be diminishing. And uh, allies and adversaries alike are adjusting to its, uh, new, uh, to, to its policies, actually. Um, now, uh, two... Uh, Mr. Steiner, well, uh, Tommy Steiner, who, who's our speaker today, uh, he will argue that two main factors will probably keep the U.S. engaged in the region to some extent. Uh, the growing presence and influence of its great power competitors, uh, China and Russia, across the region, and the uh, enduring geopolitical relevance of the Middle East on the periphery of our region, the, the Indo-Pacific. A combination of these factors might actually rekindle, even if reluctantly, uh, America's uh, strategic appetite in the Middle East. Uh, so I'm very pleased to welcome our expert speaker today, uh, Tommy Steiner. He's an associate fellow at the Henry Jackson Society and a policy consultant for Signal, an uh, Israeli policy organization following, uh, focusing on China and China-Israel uh, relations. He is uh, concurrently an adjunct lecturer and teaches international relations and security studies at the Lauder School of Government at the IDC Herzliya in Israel. And uh, Mr. Steiner's fields uh, include global politics and international security, transatlantic uh, relations, and US and EU policy in the Middle East and Israel's foreign relations. He regularly advises Israeli authorities uh, international organizations, business, media, and in today's case, uh, research organizations and, and think tanks. So I'm very pleased to welcome Mr. Steiner. Before I hand over the floor to you, uh, just an admin note that uh, after his speech, uh, he, Mr. Steiner will take questions. 
you need not wait till then. Uh, if you feel that you have a question about something that he has said, please do uh, type them in so that we, uh, you know, we don't waste time waiting for questions to pop up uh, once, once his, uh, his lecture is over. Uh, so over to you, Mr. Steiner. You have the floor. Thank you, Carl, um, and thank you very much for having me uh, today, this afternoon, and, uh, and a warm hello from Israel. Um, as uh, Carl mentioned, I'll be trying to put into context uh, U.S. Uh, policy in the Middle East in roughly 30, 35 minutes, which in itself is, is a bit of a challenge, but I hope that uh, this will make sense and you'll be able to bear with me. If you don't mind, I will just, uh, just that we have some sense of structure to this discussion. Uh, I will uh, use a, a PowerPoint uh, and share it with you so that you can see it and more or less um, follow, you know, something, you know, what I'm trying to say and let me start off by before going into the details um again remind us of the main drivers of u.s middle middle east policy that have shaped its engagement in this region since the late 50s uh and this is one important point to note the u.s is a rather late comer uh to this region um uh, even after the end of World War II, at the beginning of the Cold War, it was rather reluctant of engaging seriously in the Middle East and allowed and, and asked Britain to mind its interests here. But when it realized that that is not working, only then did the United States step in. And that also was in a very modest manner. I will come back to that in a moment. Um, but when we talk about the Middle East and U.S. Middle East uh, policy, it's important to stress that we are mainly talking not about uh, uh, prestige or convictions or whatever. We're talking about how the United States reads, understands its global role, its interest, its power relations, uh, be it uh, the question of energy, which uh, has shifted along the time, um, whether we are in the phase of a Cold War and that dictates the Middle East to provide some sort of uh, varying uh, importance, the war on terror. And if we look at the future uh, and we look at the current uh, US-China uh, US rivalry, and the growing Chinese role in the Middle East, which was discussed last week, we can come to understand that, uh, again, the United States might have to reconsider its interests in the region. Now, there's also an, a few more combinations that one needs to uh, keep in mind. First of all, there's the level and of threat perception. Uh, which is closely tied with the question of uh, what I like to call the strategic appetite.
Uh, Kevin, you seem to have lost uh, Mr. Steiner. And he um just give me a give me a call. Yeah, he appears to have uh, muted himself. Can we? President, uh, um, you know, uh, President Obama, and to a large extent, uh, President Trump. Point that it is that is important to uh, note that the United States does not do well when it faces game changes emanating from the region, be it 9 11 or be it the Arab Spring, the uh, Arab awakening, uh, and the series of um, protests that spread across the Arab Middle East uh, something like 10 years ago. And at that time, the United States didn't really know how to respond. And it was uh, experimenting with outreaching to the Muslim Brotherhood and all sorts of things. And in 9-11 also, there was a bit of unclarity of how to deal with the challenges facing the region. And finally, the question of energy is a very dominant issue, but it is not the sole issue. And again, you have to put this into a certain perspective. Just, uh, it's true that the, Middle East, that the United States is now uh, uh, less, is less dependent on Middle East oil, but it is not, it is not uh, emancipated itself from the changes and flows of Middle East oil because Middle East oil still sets, to some extent at least, the price of oil and the, market, the global market fluctuations, which have a direct impact um, um, on the price of oil in the United States, too. And yes, lastly, um, Mr. Steiner, um, you're currently breaking up your internet. This connection is pretty, pretty choppy. So, oh, right, one second. Um, we can hear you right now. Oh, no, we can't. Um, there's nothing that's coming out. So uh, it's breaking is up. Is um, it still breaking? Yeah, it's still breaking. Yeah. All of a sudden. Okay, I think it it. It's maybe you could. Now? Maybe you could use your Wi-Fi. Would that be okay using your phone? Well, the connection? No, I'm, I'm, uh, I just actually was using the Wi-Fi and now I switched to my mobile. But I can oh, go back okay. to the <laughs> One <laughs> second, let's see if it works better now. Uh, now, does it work better? Yeah, it works better, yeah. I'll just um, inform you if we can't hear you again. Oh, no, it's breaking up again.
Kevin, is it better now? Yep, yep. I can hear you now, but um, it breaks once in a while. All right. Well, nothing is perfect in our life. I'll bring it closer to me. Is this better? Maybe you could um, off your video while you're presenting. Would that be okay? Yeah, yeah. No problem. Here, but there. Yeah. One second. Maybe it helps with the connection. No, it's not on the same connection, but yes, one second. Oh. One second. Can you mute? Oh, one second. Uh, all right. Okay. No, let's yeah, we'll be this way. Yep. All right. Okay. All right. Now, um, finally, the the point about Israel, which I'll keep very brief. Um, it's important to underscore that when we talk about uh, the U.S.-Israel special relationship. It really only evolved uh, in the late 1960s and particularly in the 1970s. It did not exist before. Yes, there was uh, a pro-Israel um, group. It's still no. the same. The connection is still pretty choppy, so we can't hear you anymore. Hello. Let me see. I'm going to try something else. We can hear you. Yep, yep. All good, all good. Is this better? Yes, yes, yes. Now is it better? All right. Yep, it's better. Uh, yep. By, by, all right. By the way, I am receiving your feedback that actually some do hear me properly, but let's go on. Um, on the point of Israel, as I mentioned, the strategic relationship became uh, strategic and special one only towards the end of the 1960s, early 1970s, when Israel proved that it is a strategic asset to the United States uh, and that it does useful services. And again, this ties me back to the point that the main driver of U.S. approach to the Middle East is based on interest and power, and um, that is imp very important to keep in mind. Now, as I mentioned, uh, oil is the primary driver to a large extent. Uh, you can see that in 1956, uh, the Pentagon determined that oil supply from the Middle East is a vital interest. This was not always the case because until the mid-1940s, the United States was the largest uh, producer of oil. Uh, but what makes the Middle East uh, unique and important, even if the American dependence is of uh, is, has, has uh, gone down a bit. Two thirds of the world reserves of oil are located in the Middle East uh, and they are most easily accessible. That means that their production cost is very low and easy to supply. Um, 
and this is really uh, shaped and uh, as you can see, uh, one of the first engagements of President, uh, one of perhaps the few engagements President Roosevelt has in the Middle East is his meeting on uh, on a U.S. Navy cruiser in 1945, uh, not far from Suez, with the uh, Saudi uh, King Ibn Saud, uh, and that's a very use, useful illustration. The first turning point in uh, U.S. approach to the Middle East is with the Suez Crisis, uh, when, uh, just to be very brief about this, it is when Britain and France uh, conspire with Israel to reclaim and, uh, the Suez Canal that was nationalized a year earlier, or a few months earlier, uh, by uh, the Egyptian president uh, without uh, notifying, alerting the United States, actually against warnings of the United States, uh, which told the Americans very simple, simply that if they need to manage their interest in the Middle East, they have to do it themselves. Having said that, the Middle East, <clears throat> the Middle East was not a top priority, and the Soviets, and the Soviets advanced uh, in the Middle East and created relations with uh, Egypt, with Syria, and several other countries, but they overplayed their hand. Um, to some extent, they were behind uh, and, uh, the events that led to uh, the 1967 war, which resulted in uh, what is known as uh, a, a, an Israeli victory and Arab countries defeated. Now, the Israeli-Arab wars, in that respect, were a turning point uh, because it demonstrated that the Russians could not deliver, but the Americans could deliver, um, especially to the Egyptians, uh, which resulted also in uh, a unique relationship between the United States and Egypt, and also in eventually in the Israeli uh, Egyptian peace treaty in 1979. Um, and essentially, if you look at the Middle East back in the mid 1970s, Despite all the problems that the United States had in this region during this time, and I'll come to it in a second, the United States essentially wins the Cold War in the Middle East quite early, quite, you know, in the mid-1970s. And it manages to keep its military engagement very limited, but even then, even with uh, what we would call offshore balancing, uh, this early win of the Cold War did come at a price uh, of uh, strategic entrapment, be it the um, oil crisis of the 1970s, shortly after the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, the Yom Kippur War, the October War, uh, during which the uh, Arab countries imposed, OPEC imposed an embargo on the United States and several Western countries. Um, and that would uh, lead them uh, also to uh, push forward the Israeli-Arab conflict to the top of the agenda. 
and the oil producers would uh, demand from the Americans to make, keep this issue on the agenda. So we have on one hand the Israeli armed conflict coming to be at the top of the agenda. Israel demonstrates its uh, strategic credentials. Uh, one of the clear examples of this is in 1970 in, uh, when uh, King Hussein of Jordan decides to expel the PLO, uh, the Palestinian terror organizations from Jordan, and, they, and the PLO organizations start an uprising in Jordan, the Syrians start invading Jordan, and, the, and Jordan turns to the United States for assistance. But in the mid-1970s, with uh, limited uh, resources in terms of flying in troops and mobilizing troops, the United States turns to Israel, and Israel gets uh, somewhat involved. To this day, there are no clear details of what exactly Israel did. But the Israeli very subtle intervention was sufficient to quell the Syrian uh, invasion towards Jordan and allow the Jordanians to uh, uh, gain the upper hand in the struggle vis-a-vis -vis the PLO. And this would show to the Americans that the Israelis could be uh, reliable in that respect. But when we talk about strategic entrapment, we also have to understand uh, that by the 1980s, uh, uh, the United States starts facing uh, the threat of uh, terror. First in 1982 in Lebanon. It also begins its very problematic dealings with the Islamic regime when it comes to power in Tehran with the hostage crisis and the, and the more subsequent hostilities between the two countries. So it is a mixed picture, um, but it shows also that the United States at the end of the day would uh, win the win the Cold War. It would keep the oil producers sweet, the Soviets out, and try to solve uh, the Middle East conflict. Uh, now, when the um, Cold War ends, uh, we face, to some extent, a new situation uh, from the very beginning. Uh, Pax Americana is established in the Middle East, <coughs> and it's there and it's uh, vividly demonstrated in the uh, Iraq uh, War in 1991, when Saddam Hussein in 1990s uh, invades and uh, captures Kuwait, and subsequently tries to uh, push the Israeli Palestinian peace towards peace. Uh, not very successfully, but in the 1990s, we also see very clearly how radical Islamic terror starts brewing uh, and starts affecting the United States. Um, uh, just to uh, give you a, a few points on this, uh, for those who forget, uh, this does not start um, in uh, the war, the terror against the United States doesn't start with 
September 11th, but rather earlier. The first World Trade Center bombing is, is uh, in 1993. Then we see bombing of US facilities in Saudi Arabia uh, and in Africa, and the bombing of the uh, USS Cole in Aden. Um, all these uh, ahead of September 11th, but again, of course, September 11th would become a watershed. Now, this is a, a, a remarkable watershed because it's not only about uh, the United States going after enemies that strike the American homeland, which is uh, you know, understandable uh, to a large extent. But we are talking about a strategic shift in the strategic conduct of the United States. Um, if we look throughout uh, the Cold War, uh, the United States' strategic approach towards the, United, towards the Soviet Union's primary uh, enemy during that period, it was of containment. And to and for the first time, it abandons this approach and simply says, we do not wait. And we will go out and target US enemies. We will preempt their uh, actions. That means that we will target them before they strike us. But we will also engage in what is known as preventive wars, that we will strike our enemies when they are still weak and starting to rise again. We don't wait for the Saddam Hussein to become regional menaces. We will cut them off, cut them out, way before that. And we will try to deal with the root causes of uh, the Middle East, because from an American perspective, after September 11th, the underdevelopment in the Middle East becomes a threat. The fact that it is socially, economically, and politically underdeveloped allows terror to brew, radical Islam to flourish. We, the Americans, need to deal with the root causes. Now, this was a very ambitious undertaking. But it didn't work well for quite a few reasons. First of all, it was a huge, perhaps impossible undertaking to try and fix the Middle East in one big, bold strike. And what the Americans were trying to do was not only deal with the likes of Saddam Hussein, but also with their long-standing allies to democratize their regimes. They applied pressure on Mubarak, uh, and Mubarak held elections in Egypt in 2006, and, uh, and had to postpone them after it became clear that the Islamists were winning the day. So the United States came in with a mixture of boots on the ground, political pressure, in situations that simply did not work, they were high in turn, and they cost 
and their costs were very high, both in terms of blood and treasure. And when I talk about blood and treasure, I'm talking about local inhabitants and also American lives. Um, and it simply did not work. The United States branded a group of countries as the axis of evil, many of them in the Middle East, Syria, Iran, Iraq at the time, and I was trying at the same time also to, to push other countries, its own allies, towards democracy. And as we know, although this experiment didn't really work. Now, we, when President Obama is, enters the White House, we see the, a course reversing. We see an approach that would eventually lead to uh, more restraint, a certain pullback, which was not always uh, perfect and not always clean. Uh, what clearly shaped uh, the American approach to the Middle East during the Obama presidency was the economic crisis, the need to devote more resources and attention at home, and at the same time to contend with what was then still only uh, an assertive rise in China. And when it came to the Middle East, there was a strong desire to do away with the unending wars in the region, but eventually that really didn't work. Uh, but the US approach and don't do stupid shit was uh, President Obama's way to deal with all sorts of ideas about how to deal with the Middle East. It was a very, a, a very reserved, very prudent approach. Uh, but he also had to deal with uh, one major curveball that his administration really had a trouble dealing with, and that was the Arab Spring, which uh, led to the administration flirting with the Muslim Brotherhood with the hope that actually the Muslim Brotherhood would be an answer. On one hand, it was, uh, not, in, was not involved in corruption. On the other hand, it was connected to the people. And on the other hand, it hadn't aspired or stated its interest in being part of the democratic game, at least in Egypt. What the Americans did not understand, of course, at the time was that the Muslim Brotherhood was only interested in engaging in elections once and for the last time. Um, so in that respect, uh, that flirting with the Muslim Brotherhood uh, created uh, a lot of tension between the US administration and most of its allies in the Middle East, particularly we're talking about the Saudis, the Emiratis, Israel, and Jordan, uh, who did not uh, have a favorable view of this connection. Now, the mayhem in Iraq, as we all know, offer, set the ground for the rise of ISIS. Um, and at first, the United States was uh, late to respond to this. Um, but 
uh, it also undermined its credentials uh, in the region when in the summer of 2013, President Obama decided not to adhere to his own red line to the Syrian regime that if uh, the Assad regime would use chemical warfare against its civilians, the United States would respond militarily. And when evidence demonstrated clearly that the Syrian regime indeed did this and did cross the red line, President Obama decided at the end of the day not to use the military option that he uh, committed to. Now, during this period, another effort to limit the U.S. costs in the region was to seek a diplomatic approach towards Iran. Now, this came after the United States and Europe ratcheted up the sanction squeeze on the Middle East, on the Iranians. And the deal they brokered between 2013 and 2015 was a compromise. It had its merits, it had its pitfalls, um, but essentially it kicked the can down the road. It did not solve the nuclear issue or the nuclear file, and it allowed or and directed Iran to engage more extensively in its other regional uh, activities to create uh, strategic uh, strongholds in Iraq, in Syria, uh, in Lebanon, and in Yemen. And this was, to some extent, the price uh, of the deal. And finally, towards the end of the presidency, we see also the big Russian comeback to the Middle East, which, to a large extent, the Americans did, ne did not object to. Um, and when you look at this picture, you can understand why American allies started to understand that they might be on their own or could only, to a certain extent, uh, rely on the United States. And now, and this of course brings us to the Trump factor. Now, largely, one has to understand that, if you can say it in these terms, strategically speaking, the, the overall orientation of President Trump and President Obama when it comes to the Middle East is not that different. Um, there was a difference in terms of how to deal with Iran. Uh, but it had, uh, it still has a problematic relationship with uh, Russia in the region. Overall, it wants to limit its, its exposure uh, and its uh, strategic debt in the debt to the Middle East. Uh, and when it comes to Middle East, there is only limited thinking in terms of great power competition, which we see elsewhere, for instance, in Europe and, of course, in the Indo-Pacific region. But that might come down along the way. Now, what really shapes, uh, what really uh, stands out when it comes to the Trump presidency 
It is the question of unpredictability. Now, on one hand, um, uh, it makes uh, American adversaries to stand on their tiptoes and they're not sure what will happen. And the Iranians learned this the hard way uh, with the unexpected uh, targeted killing of Qasem Soleimani back in January. The Russians learned this when for a short time during uh, the summer and autumn of 2018, the American administration, before it Tom decided to pull out, actually rattled Russia's uh, stronghold and presence in Syria, seriously. And that does show that boots helped to that extent. Uh, but on the other hand, its signature policy in the Middle East perhaps has been the maximum pressure on Iran. And that leads to a very question, to what end? Now, one can say that maximum pressure has been highly effective in its applying pressure, but not in yielding any policy results, because to a large extent, it is possible that the Iranians believe that the Americans really want, are really after regime change. And if that is the case, there, and unlike 2013-2015, there is no way, there's no reason for them to seek a compromise because you really can't compromise. But also when you look at the Allies, and even when, uh, you're thinking, when you think about the next week's ceremony between uh, signing the peace treaty between the UAE and Israel, it's not only about American pressure. It's really um, Iraqi relationship did not evolve overnight. It's been evolving uh, for several years, because American allies have come to understood that they need to work together. And during this part of time, it is also important to note that the Emiratis were also considering their uh, uh, another take or another approach vis-a-vis -vis Iran. But it seems that they have now concluded that that didn't really work. And Part of the deal, and a large part of this israeli Iraqi deal is not is about the fact that they, that these uh, parties now have to contend uh, with regional threats without being able to be fully reliable or without being, having the United States uh, sufficiently reliable in their regional challenges. Now, will Biden make a difference? Well, to some extent, yes. And two points are very important. Yes, the Middle East still will be, you know, Asia and the rise of China will be uh, the main predominant issue. And yes, the US administration under Biden, if he comes to power, will want to limit its exposure to the Middle East. And Biden has been promoting this approach even when he was vice president. So this will continue. Now, what is clear, however, that there will be, there could be a substantial change in 
the U.S. approach towards its traditional allies in the Gulf, towards Saudi Arabia, the Emiratis, and others. Um, and this could also position Israel into a problematic point. Secondly, it will be, uh, the policy will be much more predictable. Uh, and that in itself is important. With less boots on the ground, there's a lot of talk now about recalculating the assessing US presence in the Middle East that will come. But again, as we have seen in the past, things might change. The United States is not leaving the Middle East, but uh, uh, it's downscaling perhaps, but it might actually come back. And I think I will stop here to allow time for questions and comments.